What does urbanism look like around the world? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Scott Beyer. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Scott Beyer. Scott is an urban affairs journalist who writes regular columns for the Independent Institute Governing Magazine, HousingOnline.com, and other publications. And last but not least, of course, he owns and manages Market Urbanism Report. He regularly does interviews across the media landscape, of course, on the topic of urbanism. He's originally from Charlottesville, Virginia, and he's based in New York City. Scott and I did an episode together way back when. It was actually one of the first handfuls of the Curious Task episodes, so we're very happy to have him back on. Uh, Before, we were talking about market urbanism, more generally speaking, and today we're getting into something a little more specific. Scott, welcome back to the Curious Task. Thank you, Alex. Good to be back. It's great to have you on. So, Scott, as you know, in each episode, we pick a question and theme and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, what does urbanism look like around the world? And since you're currently in the middle of a process that allows us, that allows you to see that in person, uh, we have so much to talk about. Uh, and you are just the person to ask all this stuff right now. But before we get into your travels and exactly what urbanism looks like around the world, I want to remind our listeners that you and I did an episode together a while back on market urbanism in general, so I hope people check Mm -hmm. that out. Um, But to set the stage of our conversation at a very high level, because as I said, we have that episode and your site is out there, but just at a very high level, can you summarize what market urbanism is just as a general perspective? Yeah, so the bumper sticker version is a cross between free market policy and urban issues. I'd say the extended version is, um, and this will be popular to your audience, is the use of classical liberalism and how it can apply specifically to urban issues like housing and transport. Um, I'd say the, the, the two really subject matters that we or, or maybe the versions of market urbanism that I have explored over the years of my site. Um, one of it is, is what I call the pragmatic policy package. So this is going into places like San Francisco and New York and in, in places that aren't exactly libertarian um, and where market urbanism, the purest version is never going to pass and saying, what are some incremental forms that kind of push towards classical liberal ideology that can be, that can actually get political muster in existing cities. So that can be everything from slight zoning reforms to ending parking minimums, the low hanging fruit Um, market urbanism. On the other hand, um, and this is a version that I've grown more interested in, as I travel around the world, is is more of a philosophical inquiry into how cities would work if they were, in fact, not government-run whatsoever, if they were privately managed. And so um, the reason that's that's theoretical is because most big cities around the world are, are still, in fact, government-run and, 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 demo- and, and follow various democratic um, processes and, and various public choice flaws are associated with that. But you know, the, the, the inquiry here is if you had a company that managed its own city and that answered to a board of investors and, and its consumers, maybe rather than voters per se, um, would that be that would be a more pure version of market urbanism? And how would that look? Excellent. I think that was a great overview. And you did mention your site. So um, the market ur- urbanism report. And just before I get into some more specifics about your travels, 
I know I'll give you the opportunity, shameless plug. What is the market urbanism report? Why should people check out your site? What, what's going on there? Well, it's part of a market urbanism is a larger movement. Um, kind of like, I don't know if you're familiar with new urbanism, but it, it's kind of a larger movement. There's a lot of different people, you know, um, speaking and writing and even building under the new urbanism rubric. Um, market urbanism is kind of, kind of the same way. There were people who were talking about market urbanism before I started my report. Um, and, and I, I started market urbanism report in 2017 after the movement was about a decade strong to further popularize the idea and, and expand the number of issues that we covered. But basically market urbanism report is a think tank that, um, publishes weekly articles and we have, um, an active social media thread and, and, various media things that we do. Um, and it, it, it's dedicated to uh, promoting free market urban policy. Great. And so now getting a little bit more into the meat of the matter here, there is a page, of course, on the Market Urbanism Report website titled Scott Byers Market Urbanism World Trips. So can you describe right from top to bottom, pretend someone's never heard of this before. Obviously, I read <laughs> about it and followed some stuff. But if someone's new to it, What's the purpose of this project? How is it structured? What are you currently doing, Scott? That's so interesting here. <laughs> well, I'm calling from South Africa, so that, that should give you one idea. Um, but so I, before this trip uh, that you just mentioned, I was a, I, I've been basically a, a U.S. journalist who focuses on U.S. urban issues. And I thought that um, traveling the world, particularly the developing world, um, would give me new insight about cities and how market ideology might apply to cities and, and what we can learn from, from these developing world cities and their challenges. So um, in July of 2022, I started a 1.5 year tour of the global South. And so that's five months in Latin America. I'm spending six, which, which by the way, at the time of this call, that leg of the trip is already complete. Um, and I can speak the most about Latin America at this point. Um, then it's going to be the, fir the first half of 2023 is going to be Africa. The second half of 2023 is going to be Asia. Um, it's, it's, it's a two, it's about two weeks and 40 different stops. Uh, all 40 stops are kind of the big legacy cities that define these regions. Um, but then as we, and we can discuss this later in the interview, um, there's also going to be like several dozen sub stops around these stops. And, and those are going to be my detours to quote unquote startup cities. So kind of, kind of talking about the themes we, we were before the legacy cities represent to me places where that might incrementally adopt market urbanism reforms in the startup cities, which we can get into are kind of like the more pure version of market urbanism, the, 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 the pure privatization that I was talking about earlier. Hmm. Actually, and I do have a question later on. I want to ask you specifically about Startup City. So that works perfectly. So we'll hold off on that for now. Um, but yes, that, that's excellent. And thank you for the overview of the trip. So um, and I, I did want to push further into, into your mindset about the trip as, as we were sort of on this point, though, before we get on to other things, because why did you think it, it was so important for you to do this tour and see things in person? Now, I'm not saying I believe this, but you can almost picture maybe somebody saying, well, you know, uh, you know, Scott, why don't you put on just your uh, your VR goggles and just do a bunch of research from home? Like, like what, what <laughs> kind of what kind of like like why, why was it so important for you to go and see this stuff in person? Well, a lot of it's just personal. I mean, I, I just like to travel. I mean, you know, like I'm I'm young and single at this point, and 
eventually we'll start a family and, and you can't just go when you have a wife and kids, you can't just go for a year and a half around the world. So right. it, it seemed like time was, was running short on my opportunity to do this. I'd always wanted to see Latin America, Africa, Asia. They always had a mystique to me from afar. And, and this was my chance to just put it all together and take the trip. Um, beyond the personal reasons, I mean, I, I'd say some of it is the journalism. Again, you know, it's it's wanting to see, you know, how how can market urbanism philosophy apply to and be informed by de- these developing world cities. Um, and then I think a lot of it also is just from a personal investing standpoint. Um, you know, maybe this is the vibe you're getting in Canada, but I know that particularly in the United States, a lot of the economic fundamentals are, are beginning to look worse and worse uh, from, from, from a governing standpoint. You know, we have inflation, we have money printing, we have debt that is that is spiraling out of control. You can kind of see the statism that, that defines much of Europe beginning to creep over into the United States, which we always thought of the United States as like this beacon of freedom, and it's becoming less and less so. And so I'm... From an investing standpoint, I'm kind of interested in what is the what is the new world of, of the twenty of the twenty first century? Is there any is it anything in developing markets where maybe the state in, institutions are weaker? Where are what regions of the world are going to allow capitalism and free enterprise to flourish if it's if it's no longer the U.S. Because wherever the answer is, that's where I want to invest. Uh, so that's that's a lot of the basis for the trip is just searching for that. Great. And actually segues right into the next question I want to ask you very nicely. So, um, you know, based on the purpose of your trip, I want you to cast your mind back before you started the trip, just before I get into more nitty gritty here. You you said, you know, you wanted to take personally, you want to take this opportunity to go see things you haven't seen before. So not only are like you reporting and actually um, looking at things from, you know, the market urbanist perspective of you travel, but there's also some personal gratification reasons you're there too, which I think is really cool. So all this is going on in your head when you're planning the trip before you actually went anywhere uh i want to talk about like your sort of um you know before you even had a first impression of the cities in this trip itself what kind of things were you looking forward to and expecting to find we'll talk about maybe how you have some expectations either disappointed or some things that you were more excited about when you actually got there but before you went on the trip what, what were the kinds of things were you expecting were you expecting a certain part of the world was going to be a certain way were you expecting that you know this city in particular really want to go to where was scott sort of before he actually got on the first plane in his mindset i just wanted to talk <laughs> about that for a bit Hmm. Well, a, a lot of the things that have grabbed my interest the most have actually been things that I discovered during the trip um, mm-hmm. that were kind of like they're going to be macro level real estate and, and urbanism um, concepts that are going to inspire me probably for the next couple decades. But before the trip, it, it was kind of I was kind of just going in with an open mind. Um, I knew I knew vaguely about the startup city idea and that there might be things that I'd, I'd find that resembled that, but didn't know I'd find it to the extent that I have. Um, yeah, I, I guess to answer your original question, the, the theme of the of the episode, what I believe I would have found, um, like how does the rest of the world do urbanism? What I believed I was going to find is actually what I did find, which is that hmm. um, the the sprawl and decentralization that defines a lot of the U.S. Um, and that, in my mind, was largely due to government subsidies 
has not accelerated. It, it's happening a little bit um, in Latin America and even the early parts of Africa that I'm seeing. But overall, I think there's much more of this idea that you live in traditional patterns. Um, a lot of the traditional cities that are are built the way they were have been that way for centuries. So we're, we're looking at centuries of wisdom and habit that have gone into the way that, that existing cities are planned and laid out. Hmm. And so this, this idea that you, that you just build roads and build massive sprawl subdivisions around the roads and that, that, that would be your predominant um, land use form. That's an aberration. Like that's not the way most of the world lives. And so some of that is due to the money. Like they don't have the money to, from a personal consumer discretionary standpoint, they don't have the money to pay for that. But also the governments don't have the money. Like they don't have the money to, you know, tear out neighborhoods and build highways. They don't, they don't have the funds to do that. Mm-hmm. And so things have always kind of stayed more, more step, more, I don't want to say stagnant because that's not the right word, but more into the traditional urban form. And so I was expecting that. And I found that to even be more of the case than what I thought. Oh, that's interesting. So more of the case, then let's get further into that then. So I'll, I'll throw sort of an easy one. That's kind of a good springboard for you to some other things you're just treading into there. Then, then let's just talk about what, what has been your favorite city to see so far and why from a market urbanist perspective, and based on the kinds of things you were, you were just talking about, what has either met or exceeded your expectations and what, what city can you, you know, can you pull some case studies and points out of that, that springs to mind immediately for you? I'd say the best the, the best overall city just from a fun standpoint is Rio de Rio de Janeiro. Um and that is but that everybody kind of knows about that. Um I think the, the 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 rebound story that has really stuck out is Medellin, Colombia, and maybe to a lesser extent Bogota, because a lot of people when they think Colombia, they just think cocaine. <laughs> but, right. But that's that's not a They've they've done a good job of of tackling that problem and and now so when you go to Medellin and Bogota specifically Medellin um, there's a lot of like really exciting things happening they have really nice neighborhoods um, they have you know great exciting mixed use multi purpose neighborhoods and 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 actually quite attractive public spaces like things that far surpass anything I've ever had in the U S you know, so I'd say that would be the nicest surprise. Mm-hmm. And kind of pulling on a thread that you were just introducing before, because I do want to focus on the good and quote unquote, the bad as well, but sticking on the good for just a little bit longer here. So is that really just to drill into what you're saying before further, really the main thread through your travels that you see is that these cities um, that you think are the best from the market urbanist perspective truly are sort of, you know, laissez faring, if you will, and letting the market and the, you know, the, the, the wisdom and the habit, as you said, decide over time how the city develops versus sort of a government coming in from that top down approach. Like, is, is it really just as obviously there's a lot of nuance, but it does it really simply come to that? Like, do you feel that in these cities? I mean, you've been there in person. I haven't like, do you, is there kind of like that overall different vibe and feeling that that really just comes down to that when you get to these places? Well, I think there's kind of a paradox there um, that that in a lot of ways speaks to the worst of Latin America and the best of Latin America. So the worst of it is that there is there is a governing regime that in some ways is more top down than the U.S. Like if you look at the economic freedom rates in the United States and I would assume probably Canada, they have higher economic freedom than all the Latin American countries um, or at least most of them. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that would speak to, well, a lot of Latin American countries from the top down have, you know, really from their national governments do have high taxes and regulations and, and tariffs and, and all the things that erode your economic freedom score. Um, they also have like money printing regimes that that are that are far worse than the Federal Reserve and, and that have completely collapsed the currencies in many cases. So that's that's top down statism. Right. But then the paradox is that when you actually just walk through a Latin American city, it's it's um, that's where the market urbanism comes out. It, it's kind of like the the top down statism somehow hasn't quite made it down to the block um, level in many cases. Right. Um, and and I think that has a lot to do with like weak enforcement and weak state institutions. It's not necessarily philosophical libertarianism per se. It's just it's it's more like the default. So right. some examples I could I could give you um, that really make these cities interesting. When you walk through a central neighborhood, what they call a centro, like a, a downtown business district, you're going to see street commerce everywhere, and and much of it is illegal. Much of it is just people setting up tents like in the square and just deciding to sell something. So to to the scold, that might sound like a bad thing, but in practice, it's it's actually wonderful because it's like you can buy anything within a couple square blocks. Um, another example of this bottom up urbanism would just be. Again, it's it's. It, I hesitate to call it market based, but like they also build illegal slum settlements um, called favelas in Brazil. It's called barrios mm-hmm. populares in, in Spanish Spanish speaking countries. Um, but that's basically just informal settlements where like a horde of rural migrants who want to live in a city will just invade public land, like they'll invade a public mountainside <laughs> and and just start building like permanent structures um, with with cement and brick and tin roofs and, and things like that. And they become quite sophisticated neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So again, again, that's not, that's not market per se, because it doesn't, it doesn't thrive on the property rights concepts that we, that we associate with classical liberalism, but it is kind of like, it, it, it's sort of like this bottom up squatter settlement style urbanism that allows people to live close to jobs. Whereas I think in a more regulated um, Western notion of, of urbanism, people like that just don't get anywhere near the city. They have to live way out into in the right. suburbs because they can't afford the city center. Right. Absolutely. And yeah, I think I, I know what you're saying about it might not necessarily be like sort of that uh, fulfilled, like, you know, if you will, cl- classical liberal per se sort of free market approach. But I think in the broadest sense, you are touching on something that's very free market in the sense of voluntary interaction, people dealing with things unto themselves as market forces rather than that top down approach. And I think the point you brought up um, a little earlier is also very interesting, too, especially as people paint the picture of, of your travels in their head is that like, um, I'm glad you're very clear about the fact like, you know, this isn't just because some of these cities are like, you know, philosophical havens for like libertarian ethics or something like that. You're not finding no. that, especially in Latin America, as you're saying, what you're really saying is that these pockets, uh, and of course, correct me if I'm uh, paraphrasing you inc- incorrectly, is that there's, you still get these pockets of sort of like market-based voluntary interaction forces that, you know, maybe the government might control if they could, but they just can't in this case. So then you, but but nevertheless, you still see a lot of thriving and, and human action that it, that is very rich is what I'm getting from what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, if, if you look at markets less as an ideology than it is just, just like a, a natural law, the way gravity gravity is, 
markets are very are very much in, in play um, in Latin America. Everybody has something to sell, and they can sell it wherever they want. <laughs> and, and and there's no there's no rules. Uh, so it's like you you really get to the to the meat of what of what the consumer demand is. Um, everything from if they're selling fruits that they they're growing out of their garden to you know like they'll have I've seen people have little rickshaws where they they have like a three seater in the back and, and they're, they're taking people around on that as a taxi ride. It, it, it's, it's market, it's market based down to the studs. Mm-hmm, for sure. And um, on that note, so like just pulling over into sort of, um, cause you mentioned this paradox and I thought that was a very good way to think of it. So on the flip side, when we're talking about United States, Canada um, from an economic and uh, political freedom perspective, oftentimes, you know, these two countries specifically will rank very much higher than a lot of what's going on in the global South. Yet we sort of have this flip side where that might be happening at the high level, but when we get to the city level, which we could talk about a little more in a second, as you know, you were alluding to um, it seems that there's less freedom in many ways or less market forces at the bare bones that's sort of as you were saying that that's really sort of creating the growth in the city or or guiding the activity uh there's often a lot of state control city planning and urban planning and so on and so forth so keeping this sort of paradox and this flip side in mind and the fact that to some people's mind canada might have a little more overall and the united states might have a little more overall sort of uh you know, classical liberal framework at its disposal as far as maybe a little bit more of rule of law, if you will, a little bit more formal private property arrangements. What kind of lessons do you think places like the United States and Canada can follow as far as the kinds of things you've seen in your tour so far? Like, so for instance, no um, city official ever in Canada in this lifetime uh, from an incremental perspective is going to say, yeah, let's just forget about all this and leave that be and let's have like what's going on in some of these global South cities because as you said, there's, it's not as like formalized. So we're never going to get to that point, but back to your incrementalism discussion, what kind of lessons that are practical and realistic do you think that we can pull from some of your travels and actually, you know, sort of graph them onto the municipal realities of places like the U S and Canada? Yeah. Well, that, that's interesting that you, you, you brought up that inverted nature, um, just to, the paradox is inverted in the Western world in the sense that yes, the, the, the U.S. has a cla- purportedly has a classical liberal framework of property rights and contractual law, and so if you're a big business, you're you're going to locate in the U.S. most likely headquarter there before you locate in Brazil. I mean, right. that's but but then it's like once you get actually to the street level, that's where the the hyper regulation comes in, and you can't do anything. So I'd say I'd say both regions have to learn from one another, like. Um, maybe take the the larger economic freedom framework of the Western world. I think Latin America could very much use that um, because there's probably like a lot of startup activity and various entrepreneurial activity, particularly on the large scale that could theoretically work in Latin America that does not because they don't feel like that, that system of property rights is there. Conversely, I think if we're looking at the microeconomic neighborhood level, I think maybe a lot of lessons from 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 Latin America could apply to the U.S. and Canada. Um, I'd say the, the 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 most particular one to me is the thing I was talking about earlier with the favelas. You know, if 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 you if your city has a homeless problem, and I know that many big ones in the U.S. and Canada do, 
mm-hmm. and you have tent encampments, I think there is a temptation to say, oh, well, these people are helpless. You know, they they just need to be thrown in shelters and, and, and given reprieve all day to, to do their drugs and alcohol. Right. And I, I, Latin America tells me something different because there's not mm. really the, the acute home, homelessness problem there that I see in the bigger cities of the U.S., interestingly enough. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of the reason for that is because there is like a release valve. There's a place that the extremely low income can build, um, and the state actually lets them do that. It doesn't just tear up their encampments. So, I mean, I think maybe a lesson would be like, you know, if you, if you have state if you have state-owned property and you have a homeless problem somewhere in a city, maybe allow the homeless just to build a makeshift favela um, mm-hmm. there and, and get and give them land title and, and let them commercialize their units in some way. And that would be a start to them rebuilding their lives. Right. Yeah, and I think that that's a very interesting point, especially since, you know, you know, we have in, in North America, a lot of cities essentially running on, relatively speaking, against the kind of things you've seen, like very rigid frameworks of development, what kind of houses can be built in certain ways, zoning, this, that, the other thing, you name it, we can go through a whole list of things. And all these rigid boxes are created. And then down the line, of course, and currently we're based, you know, a lot of people turn around and go, well, how come, you know, various people, uh, you know, aren't, you know, basically fitting in these kinds of boxes, whether it's affordability of houses or, you know, some people are, you know, homeless completely, stuff like that. And, you know, it's very interesting to hear you hear you say, and I think a lot of people might be shocked to hear that, you know, the, there's different problems everywhere, but the same kind of problems are all solved by, from what you were saying, is like basic, the basics of market forces in other places, because here, the solution often is brought up, okay, well, if there's a problem here because of the way we're regulating the city, of course, more regulation in another plan is necessary to fix the homeless population or homeless shelters or whatever it is. And you're basically saying, you know, no, no, maybe take a lesson from Latin America, for example, might be shocking to some to hear, but it makes a lot of sense based on the context of this conversation, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, none of the favelas that I've seen would pass the code in any U S municipality and probably not in (laughs) Canadian one. I mean, like they're, they're the most anti-code thing you can imagine and that does come with problems. So I, I don't want to sugarcoat it. I mean, I think like a lot of the favelas that are built in the hillsides in, in Brazil are off, are often uh, subject to landslides, you know, because they're kind of mm. weak framed buildings. And, and it's like, why are they building on hills in the first place? And, and, and that kind of stuff. And so there's right. not basic sanitation. There are problems with these places, but I don't look at them as being as bad as like, say, having just a huge skid row where you have people living in tents, you know, they're not that bad. Um, and so, yeah, maybe, maybe right. throw out some of these minimum standard codes that prevent development like this. Yeah. I mean, there's gotta be a happy medium somewhere between, you know, a favela in Latin America, for example, and a very small house in an overregulated area. That's almost a million dollars in a North American yeah, city. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean there's gotta be yeah. some in between there we can work on. Um, and actually, we're, we're about at the time that we need to take a break. So we're going to do that right now before I jump into some more questions. So everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Scott Beyer today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Andy Crooks, Elizabeth Aragona, and Vincent Geloso. 
Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Scott Byer today. So, Scott, I think the first half was great. We sort of, you know, talked a bit about an overview of your travels and what the plan of attack is, some of the things you've learned. And we focused a lot on the uh, the positive before the break. And we were just talking about some lessons from your travels that perhaps can be pulled over into places like Canada, the United States. I kind of want to flip it a little bit and actually say, you know, I, we talked about your favorite city. We talked about positives. So what was the city that you found you know, and of course, we don't want to be mean to people here, but from the market urbanist perspective, of course, either the most disappointing or troubling from that sort of perspective. So one of the ones that there's some negative things there and, you know, you know, and to continue the thought as well, perhaps some uh, lessons that uh, places like the United States can, can look at and say, OK, we'll definitely avoid X, Y and Z as <laughs> to apply more market urbanism, for example. So disappoint, disappointments, negatives and things to be concerned about in your travels so far. I'd say Sao Paulo, Brazil. Um, as much as I liked Rio, Sao Paulo was really the study in contrast. Um, not all of it was necessarily from a market urbanism perspective, it, it was a, but it was a, a public order perspective. Um, quite a lot of that city is, is just is, is, is kind of slum. I mean, just a lot of vacancy, a lot of graffiti. I mean, I remember going to a beautiful, going like through a, past a beautiful old church, you know, because Latin America has a lot of those. Beautiful mm-hmm. old stone church, tagged up and down, you know, just what a shame. Um, homelessness everywhere. And so, I mean, I, I think it really speaks to the public safety problems in a lot of, in a lot of Latin America. And I think it was just, it just happened, to, it seemed worse in Sao Paulo than other cities that I went to. Um, even the nice neighborhoods in Sao Paulo, I found that they were often quite fortified because, you know, a lot of rich people get kidnapped. Um, a lot of Brazil leads Latin America in kidnappings, hmm. according to one study that I read. So, I mean, you had you had this nice tropical neighborhood that in theory would have would have been this wonderful green, you know, verdant, beautiful suburb. Um, but all the nice houses had huge walls behind them with spikes on top. So it, it wasn't really like something the pedestrian could enjoy very much. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I think viewing Sao Paulo as, as a um, as a proxy for the crime problems that exist in a lot of really all through Latin America, um, because that that sense of disorder existed in every city to some degree. Um, and I think, and I, I think where market urbanism might come in on that is a lot of these specific neighborhoods, like that I was going to in Sao Paulo, were central neighborhoods that used to be nice. And I think in a lot of cases, regulations prevent some of those older buildings from being, you know, readapted. I, I, I hear hmm. that problem a lot in different Latin American cities I go to, even for property owners themselves, who will say, "Yeah, don't don't buy any buildings in the centros, you know, because they all have." historic preservation statuses or, or various things and you can't do anything with the buildings. And so what that causes in, in real, in reality is just vacancy. Right. Right. I mean, like, it's, yeah, I guess it's one thing for a local government or state government or whatever it is to uh, want to preserve something. It's another, uh, you know, it's another thing if there's actually a project or funding or whatever behind that to actually preserve and do something where the versus just things sitting there abandoned. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
And and I guess like it's interesting because as you were talking there, I sort of pulled on a thread that that seems to be sort of the flip side of what we were saying earlier. You know, the positive of a lot of the places that you visited, you were saying um, in some cases there is d- disorder, like just objectively speaking, not necessarily a bad thing, but that actually leaves room for market forces and people to voluntarily interact and do things that they might otherwise would do would be able to do if the state was like severely regulating things. But you you know, but on, on the other hand, I guess it, you know, in some of these cities where you said good things were happening, where there might have not necessarily been a a private possession or property framework in place or like some basic security enforcement. I guess that has its negative sides as well is, is sort of what I'm hearing. If, it, if I can take the inverse of that or, but of course you correct me if I'm wrong, but that's kind of yeah. what I heard is that that's a curse and a blessing. No, you're, it you're, seems. you're spot on. It, it, it's a double-edged sword and that's part of, it's almost like a certain, for me at least, it's almost like there's a certain charm to it. Um, hmm. You know, I remember, I remember thinking like uh, if you drive on the interstate in Latin America, <laughs> like, there, it'll be a two-lane road, but the drivers in each lane know to like kind of spread apart because the middle lane, quote unquote, um, the line is where all the motorbikes go through, and they right. just they just fly by. I mean, those they're daredevils, and so you might if you, if you're of the more neurotic um, framework, like the pro regulation framework, you might say, well, that's just awful, and in in it. it Maybe you're right because it's not exactly safe. I mean, it, I'm sure it brings all kinds of death and injury to the roadways. Um, but it, I guess if you're more live and let live, you're like, well, that's that's actually kind of hilarious. And it's also exciting and, and it's but it's also pragmatic um, right. just because it means a lot of those guys are delivery guys. Because, so it means they can get to their 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 place faster. Um, and so there's a certain efficiency there. And that's really the. That's really the, the the tug and pull with all of Latin America. It's like they they're less regulated at the street level, all the way up to the point that maybe it's a little bit bad too, and and you allow legitimate crimes. But then there's also a lot of good that comes from it. Hmm. Very interesting. And, and shifting gears a little bit now, because um, you mentioned it before, and as our time enters its giant final swing here, I want to make sure we get into this, which is. Um, you, you talked a bit about like startup cities and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So I want to kind of shift gears into that and, and kick off from that. So I'll, I'll just say that like, you know, I did notice uh, as I was preparing for this episode, the, uh, you know, the mar- market urbanism, uh, you, you run a discussion, the marketism urbanism report has a discussion Facebook group, which is very interesting. And very recently there's been some discussion about even like things like cars and crowding in cities specifically and how much they should be used if at all. Anyway, you posted a post very recently and said, and I'm just gonna read the quote here so we can jump off from it. You've, you've said, I, I visited nine Latin American startup cities, and the biggest surprise was how adamant they all were in touting their safe, tree-lined, multimodal streets. Often it was their main sales pitch. It validated my belief that human-oriented public realms are market outcomes, while car-oriented ones are the work of government. And then you posted a picture of pretty much, from what I could tell, an empty, over grass-overgrown pavement parking lot that looked very deserted. Um, so a couple things going on here. First off, <laughs> what is a startup city and why is this important? And secondly, you can also jump into the the car-oriented discussion and kind of what that specific post was about. Yeah, well, the the, the, the I think the more important point is the whole the overall startup city. I mean, that's one angle to it. But um, yeah, and, and so that was something that I was attuned to going into my trip. Um, again, a lot of it is investing aspect as well. Is it, it, is some of it's from the libertarian activism of wanting wanting new places that that embody economic freedom, um, and some of it is an investing standpoint of 
maybe this is the new real estate genre that's going to have way more upside because if if you can have these startup cities that are freedom oriented and growth oriented as opposed to traditional municipal governments i mean that like that would be a good investment because i mean i, I think the 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 basic premise here and the basic critique coming out of market urbanism is that current municipal run cities are state failures. Um, they, they have all kinds of flaws that are innate to them from that would be explained by the public school choice of economics. It's like, there's all kinds of, I think there's just a lot of problems with having people who don't have a basic profit incentive trying to run a city. They, they mm. conduct all kinds of, they, they make all kinds of flaws because they, are not going to suffer a financial loss from doing so. And so there's just a, there's just a lot of like tragedy of the commons issues and so on and so forth that are associated with publicly run cities. I view the private privately run startup cities that are being built on greenfields as some very potentially serious competition to them. Um, and, and, and anyone who's disen, disenchanted with this and is tired of paying high taxes for for the the enjoyment of having high crime, I mean, you know, they they might look at startup cities as something they can live in. That's a better alternative. Um, and the, the definition of startup city is really is literally just a city that's run by a private entity that is doing something kind of interesting, um, like as a startup would. So it's a city mm-hmm. as a startup. Um, so so bringing some sort of new governance innovation into the world. Um, so that could just in some cases be generic planned communities, but also in, in other cases, it might be something that actually has like special economic zone status um, and, and has some sort of actual policy autonomy from the surrounding government. So it's a combination, but I'm, I'm putting all of those things roughly under the startup city definition. Mm. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And and for that post specifically on Facebook, I mean, like this sort of like, you know, this car oriented versus like, uh, you know, market outcomes like paradigm. I know that's not the only discussion on, on the other end of the spectrum, but like diving a little further into that, what, what makes something different? Like this, this whole car oriented idea versus market oriented. What do you mean by this car oriented planning specifically? Well, a, a theme that I find, and it's really the case when you think about it in, in a lot of Western cities as well. Um, but the theme that I find is that the more wealthy a neighborhood is, the more the public realm actually, and this goes for municipalities too, um, the more wealthy a neighborhood is, the more likely it's probably going to have street trees and parks and narrower roads. I mean, you don't see a lot of bike lanes in poor neighborhoods. You do see a lot of bike lanes in richer neighborhoods. Yeah. Um, I just find as a general rule because elite consumers have more of a demand for that kind of thing. Um you know, they want speed bumps in their neighborhood. They they, they, they want to attract the medians. Um, and so I think where a lot of these startup city entrepreneurs are really like smart and they're detecting that and they're saying, if you want to attract a, an elite c- consumer, it might seem counterintuitive, but it's actually not good to just make your entire right of way dedicated to pass through traffic. Like you mm. actually do want to have attractive streets that make it seem like a community. Um, because that brings more ROI to to the land and to the general experience of living in the city. So every single startup city entrepreneur that I interviewed, to some degree or another, espouse these ideas. Um, and then the one, the specific one that I 
there's actually two, but the, the, the one that I photographed and then another one in Panama City, it's like that was literally the sales pitch of the entire project <laughs> was mm. was come here to have attractive tree lined streets. Um, and the one in Panama City actually even did it. It's, it's kind of like a sales gimmick where they're going to have something like 40 streets in the project and each street is going to be lined with a different kind of Panamanian tree species. So, I mean, it, it's very, it's very specific and intentional right? in their embodying exactly the type of thing that I've noticed for a while now. Right. And it, it's interesting because like, um, you talk, it just struck me as you were talking about that, like, you know, especially, especially in the, in Canadian American cities, like, you know, you find there's, there's often these like, you know, like things like parks, bike lanes, like different sort of mixes of land use versus just pass through traffic and stuff like that. But you did check on the fact that that's sort of like, you know, sort of like you know that that more elite crowd the more elite consumer up middle class upper middle class like these are the kinds of things that are desired in this case usually but it's interesting to note i guess that like although this stuff is great like often like people look at that from more of a, a recreational or almost what i sort of call like a theme park perspective when they get to that level of income or riches especially in the west like oh wouldn't it be nice if there's a bike lane in this neighborhood whereas in a lot of cities that you've probably traveled through as you said it's just based on the fact that the city needs to run like that you know there there happens to be a bunch of bikes and scooters going through this area as you said no one needs to <laughs> design that in necessarily either right so i think that contrast is interesting too versus like are these kinds of things the lifeblood of, of, of a city and just kind of naturally evolve or are these things like a bike lane or a specific place a scooter goes or whatever um or is this just sort of like a, a luxury that people wanted to design in further because it's all although it's great that this stuff could exist in the west as well i think there's still that balancing act needs to happen is like how naturally are people actually going to use this and want this versus it turning into another American style city project, right? With bike lanes and closed streets or whatever. Yeah. I, I, in this case, I would not, I would not describe these as a, most of what you see in Latin America is not going to be an, an American style city project. It, it's like, there's certain, there's certain intuitive ingrained, um, just things in the cultural DNA that they just do. Um, right. right. And, and, and so, I mean, some examples could be like this idea that, your the center of your town is going to be a square um, with beautiful churches all around it. You know, that, that dates back to Spanish colonialism. And it was even a thing with the indigenous, some of the indigenous communities before then. So, it, it, you know, that's, that's, that's centuries of stuff. And, and you'll, you'll see that in every Latin American city. Um, another really interesting real estate genre that I discovered was this idea of the barrio tropical, um, which means, which is Spanish for tropical neighborhood. And, uh, and and that's something where you go into these upscale neighborhoods. A lot of them were, were kind of like first suburbs outside of the city, and, and they're mm. kind of historic neighborhoods. And they'll have like all kinds of tree-lined streets, and, and they'll have tree-lined medians and parks. And so, and, and a lot of the businesses have hanging gardens coming out of their coming out of their balconies and everything. So when you walk through these barrios tropicales, it feels like you're walking through a jungle. Um, that's just, a, I think that's just a Latin American planning motif. It might not even be planning per se. It's just mm -hmm. like, you know, we have a tropical climate and we have certain botany that's innate to the region. And so let's just plan it. Um, I don't know. Right. If, I know uh, it doesn't get replicated in the West. Right. That makes as that's back to that sort of like it's part of almost the cultural DNA. It's like sort of that, yeah. that years of cultural experience and wisdom that you're saying that kind of just ends up evolving that, right? Right. Yeah, it's just what they do. Right. 
Right? Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. And you noted something about the sub- suburban areas, if you will, or areas just outside of the, the city center and core. I think when a lot of people, um, whether this is right or wrong is a different story, but a lot of people, when they think of like urbanism or market urbanism, um, you know, because often people talk a lot about different cities. Like, you know, when you see a picture online, it's always usually represented by the core of a city and, and the way the city is working sort of at the heart of it, if you will. But I mean, you know, in... Um, this whole urban sprawl discussion, as you brought up earlier, like the, you know, I live in Ottawa, the greater Ottawa area, the greater Toronto area, the greater San Francisco area, you know, you name it, you go down the list. Obviously, even I would say, and you correct me if I'm wrong, from what I've seen, at least like parts of where people live and work and play, even just outside of the city core look a lot different in North America, that is the United States and Canada than other places of the world as well. So all that to say, is there anything even when we get outside the city cores, is there anything you can remark about the differences between like, if you will, sort of like a, a Latin American uh, suburban area or area just outside the city core versus like even a North American one, even getting outside of that main city area, what are the kinds of things that you find and remark are the most different? Yeah, that's, that's tough to generalize. I mean, is it, even as you're asking the question, I'm just trying to think of like the different suburbs I saw um, in the mm. different places, because it's, yeah, it, it's not like the United States where all 50 states kind of have a vernacular that you would right. define as their sprawl. And it, it all looks roughly similar. Um, and it partly because of government subsidies, you know, like the FHA dating back decades and decades subsidizes a, a certain type of, of, of lot. Um, yeah, it, it's really a mixed bag in Latin America. You're, you're getting a, a just depending on the city, you're getting a combination of gated suburbs um to favelas i mean a lot of the a lot of the favelas just extend well out into the suburbs Hmm. you're getting like i know in medellin you know my tour guide was taking me to far far south suburbs where it was still just tons of high rises getting built (laughs) kind of like northern virginia actually where it's just like some you know high rises just going well 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 out into the suburbs um so it's really a mixed bag but you don't see the cutoff between city and suburb um, so so definitively, I wouldn't say, because it's just sort of like, I think people could just build whatever they want to build. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Actually, I think that's that would be a distinguishing factor for sure. I mean, just go to a satellite and look at that cutoff or that chunk of suburb versus that chunk of city and in, in like, you know, the American or Canadian context. And that seems to look a lot different on a satellite in other places of the world, for sure, especially yeah. places you've gone. Um and as our time does wind down here a little bit more, I kind of want to round off our discussion a little bit further. Um, like, you know, of course, our main theme today is is emergent order. We touched on this point before. And, you know, whether humans are driving urban centers from the bottom up or whether the government's driving them from the top down. And that's been like a main thread of a lot of what we've been discussing today. But just in, in your mind, and we touched on this a bit, I just want to go into it a little further. Uh, what in your mind might there be a need for as far as a top-down approach from government or any other authority, if anything? So the answer might be nothing, but I just want to know, like, you know, that question always comes up in people's mind. It's a lot of people listening to the podcast will agree less is needed completely in Canada and the United States. Absolutely. But, you know, where's that lower limit? I mean, I probably have my own in my own mind, but I want to know what what yours is in yours mind. Like, is there ever a need for this government top-down approach or anything from that planning perspective? Well, one of the things that I, I wanted to like going into the trip, one of the things I wanted to study more and I didn't really do it um, in Latin America because I was getting enchanted by so many other issues, but was the uh, 
just the idea of utilities um, in, in the idea of state versus private, because I think it's really like utilities basically work pretty well in the U.S. and Canada compared to the types of regions that I'm going through where, hmm. I mean, here here in South Africa, I'm surprised it hasn't happened already in this interview. We've been getting rolling blackouts since I've come hmm. here. Like we get blackouts every 30 minutes. Right. Now, um, now it's going to happen that you said it. but <laughs> um, and, and so, of course, like the clean water issue um, had, was an issue through most of the countries that I went to. I had to buy bottled water. So this region of the world struggles to have the basic necessities and utilities that we take for granted in the first world. And I just... I think really as I, I as I travel through Africa particularly, I want to get to the heart of, well, why is that? I mean, some of it is, is just poverty, like poverty is the default in these places. And so maybe they can't afford nice things. But I think the other aspect of it is how much does this have to do with state um, state control of the of the utility grids versus potentially private control, which is better Um you know, if, if if somebody believes there might be there might be a need for top down planning, maybe this would be an example. Like if a private, if if, if the if if the collective populace can't afford a private operator, maybe the state needs to come in and subsidize it. I don't know, but I mm-hmm. I, I think I'll have a better answer to that kind of thing um, by the end of my Africa leg. Right. And that still is consistent with the kinds of things you're saying before, which is in, in your mind, it seems like, you know, some framework stuff might not be ne- might, might be necessary, but whether or not someone could, you know, basically sell pizza out of a stand or something or some street food is a whole different discussion, right? Like that that's, that's one <laughs> yeah. thing, but the framework underneath all this might be a place for some state assistance or, or anything else like that, but, but who knows, right, as you said. But that, that still is a lot different than getting down to the brass tacks of, you know, no, no street food truck here kind of thing, which a lot of North American cities are obsessed with regulating, at, at least in Canada yeah. United States, I should say. I mean, I mean, an example, like in, in Honduras, Honduras is notorious for its terrible roads, and I can absolutely attest to that. But um, it did have one very nice state highway that was that was privately operated, but then it was... You know, of course, to be privately operated, there has to be some collaboration with the state because it was originally right. state operated. And then a private contractor was given the contract and they get a share of the revenues and all that kind of thing. So when it comes to to the extent of top down planning, that would probably that would probably be my ceiling personally mm-hmm. um, privatized to some degree, but then maybe cooperate with the state to keep prices down so that you're not you're not isolating certain people from being able to use the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a lot of cases like that in Canada when it comes to like utility corporations and things like that as well. So that, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I mean, I have one final question before we head to our final wrap up here as our time does keep going. So it's just sort of to round off from that North American perspective. You know, I always say that like I find that the feeling I'm getting um, when I look at the way certain cities are being planned, I can even think of some changes right here in my hometown of Ottawa, is that at the end of the day, a lot of these city planners are really looking at sort of designing like effectively what I think of as more like theme parks rather than workable and livable cities. And and the whole time I was listening to you about your, your journeys and your adventures here is that people are working in these cities and they're truly living in them. They're not trying to think of them as like, oh, wouldn't it be nice if, you know, when, you know, tourists came to town, they could get this snack <laughs> here or like maybe everybody could walk down this sidewalk and go to this shopping mall. You know, I, I was just thinking how much like, um, you know, places like Toronto and Ottawa and some sections feel more like a Universal Studios in Orlando versus an actual workable, <laughs> livable city. And I'm not 
not sure. I just wanted to throw that out at you if, if you think that's sort of, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm onto anything with this more like theme park mentality versus the workable livable. Because even through this discussion, working and living seems to be a lot more like in front of our discussion when it comes to some of the cities you visited versus some other urban sort of uh, projects, if you will, uh, in, in Canada and the U.S. Yeah, New, New York is kind of like that too, and increasingly Brooklyn. I mean, I, I think it's just a matter of like, if nobody, if nobody non-rich can afford to live there, it's, it's gonna, it's gonna be, it's only gonna attract tourists and kind of the global elite, and and that's that's just who it's gonna attract. All I can say is like, Latin America thoroughly does not feel like a theme park. The vast majority of it, like maybe maybe some of the Brazilian beaches, but that's about it. I mean, right. I was just going through there and like. I felt like I was in a completely different planet and and like I was in a completely different kind of society um, that was not scrubbed or sanitized in any way whatsoever. Um, and you're just, you're just seeing real life. Hmm. That's interesting. And I'm going to move us to our formal wrap up now. So let me just say, Scott, I think it was great chatting with you about this. I, I've learned a lot and, and we've talked about a lot, but if we can bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question and the kind of experiences you're talking about, let me sort of ask you the, uh, the official last question, what would you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on what urbanism looks like around the world, especially in the places you visited and what we can learn from it? In other words, if you uh, want people listening to uh, you here to take away one or two or just a few things, if anything, from this conversation, your experiences, what would you like to leave them with? I think I would just leave them with with the fact that billions of people around the world do not live the way we do in the U S for better or worse. I mean, but, but in specifically in, in, in the planning context, you know, this idea of like dense car free urbanism um, based on public transit and go getting around on bikes. That is not, that's not like some yuppie liberal motif. I mean, it might, it may seem that way in in the West, but that's Mm. actually how, billions and billions of people live around the world organically for centuries and centuries. And so I don't think there's anything to fear about continuing to build our cities in that way. Interesting. Well, Scott Beyer, thank you very much for uh, joining me in the Curious Tastin. And of course, we'll see you again when, when you're done your trip. I hear we're going to be talking down the road again. So I'm very much looking forward to that. Sounds good. Thank you, Alex. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. The Curious Task.